A quick note before we get started. This episode is part of a series of shows we recorded on the floor of the Phoenix Convention Center during the Association of Corporate Counsel's 2019 annual meeting. I wanted to point that out in case you're curious about the background noises. I also wanted to thank the ACC for helping make these episodes possible. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. With me is my producer, Brian Ewing. Uh, we have several special guests here. Uh, we have Dwayne Bryant, who's the managing director of Wombleban Dickinson's GC Solutions. We've got Caitlin, who's in our Boston office. And our special guest is Karen Valentine. Karen uh, has nearly 20 years of legal experience as outside and in-house counsel. She currently serves as chief legal officer and general counsel uh, with clinical stage bio pharmaceutical company Constellation Pharmaceuticals in Boston, Massachusetts. Constellation is a clinical stage pharmaceutical company using integrated epigenetics to develop cancer drugs for patients with abnormal gene expression or drug resistance. Karen, I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. That's great. Um, and let's start. I'd like to get a little bit of background from, from all three of you. Karen, tell us a little bit about how you came to your current position and anything else you want to add about Constellation. Sure, Mark. It's my pleasure. Um, so I'm actually an attorney that thought I would never be an attorney. I literally said that to myself when I was younger. I was pre-med. I was a neuroscience major. And I spent some time uh, working at the NIH. I absolutely loved science. And to be honest, I thought everything else was easy for me. And therefore, I had to be a scientist. And hmm. But it got to my last year in college when I kind of scratched my head and said, why am I doing this to myself? If everything else uh, I'm better at, why am I pursuing pre-med? And so I took a break. I went into the insurance industry. And then after a few years, I thought, well, you know, I really do love science. I'm good at business. What can I do that will make me be able to marry my love for science with my talent, which was more on the business and law side? So I decided to go to law school. I went to Boston University and um, specialized in their biotech law section. Gotcha. And right from the beginning, I knew that I was going to eventually go in-house. So um, after uh, law school, I went to a law firm in Boston that um, is no longer around, but at the time it was considered a, a premier biotech firm. And then relatively early in my career, I was recruited to go in-house. And uh, as you noted, I've been out for about 20 years now yeah. and uh, went in-house at a biotech company. Best decision of my life. I couldn't <laughs> be happier realizing you know, that I, there was a way to do what I loved, but also something I was good at. Oh, that's awesome. No, and I... Finding what you want to do in a job that lets you do it is one of the great joys in life. So, congratulations on getting Thank there. You. I think that's. It I think was that's not terrific. obvious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it takes a little time, but as long as you find it, I mean, uh, you can do it, and you've been doing it a long time now. So that's great. And thank you for joining us. Thank we appreciate you. it. Dwayne, I, I think this is your first time on the in-house roundhouse, and I know we've been talking a lot about GC Solutions, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about GC Solutions? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, I spent uh, the first 20, 25 years of my career in-house. I was with a, a large multinational retailer, Royal Ahold, out of uh, Holland. I spent about 20 years there. Left uh, the last five years I spent as the uh, VP and general counsel. 
I rolled over to one of Coke Industries uh, subsidiaries in upstate South Carolina, where I spent uh, about three years there as the general counsel. Also, in addition to my law degree, I also have an undergrad degree in finance as well as an MBA. So I'm accustomed to walking the halls of any corporation and very comfortable you know, with any at all levels of the corporation up into and including the C-suite as well. So that's a little bit about my background uh, in terms of GC Solutions, really uh, you know, looking for a way to create truly create value for in-house counsel and help them solve problems that I experienced for 25 years. And I think that's the beauty and the kind of the added value that I bring to the table that I can truly look at GC in the eyes and say, I've been there, done that. Yeah, for mm-hmm. a quarter of a century, I've done that. So I know truly what it's like to, to have your clients you know, literally sitting next door to you. So that I know we'll uh, discuss GC Solutions a yeah. little bit more, but that's it at a no, nutshell. That, that's great. And Caitlin, tell us a little bit about your practice. I said you're in Boston, but tell us more about, I know you're doing transactional work. Sure. I joined Womble about six months ago um, from another law firm in Boston, um, and I do corporate and securities work at um, Womble, and I represent companies from formation through different stages of venture financing and private equity financing uh, and in M&A transactions. I represent a lot of companies in the life science and technology sectors, and in addition to doing transactional work for them, I also handle day-to-day corporate matters such as commercial contracts and things like that. Great. Thank you very much. No, I appreciate it. Um, you know, you gave us some of your your background. I'm, I'm interested in how the legal department is structured and tell us a little bit about um, how things are handled there. We've got listeners that range from, you know, large companies with 50 in-house lawyers to a, a lot of folks that have may, not, may be in their first in-house position or maybe it's a small company and they don't have anybody else to talk to. Um, t- tell us a little bit about what being in the GC means and what it, how it works for you and how you manage that. Sure. Um, so I think there's two points in there. One about the organizational structure and, and the other is like, what is it really like day to day? Right. So I've been at uh, two companies over the last 18 years as in-house counsel. And in both of those, I started out when there was no internal legal function. And so I built the organization up from ground, you know, bottom up when it came to legal, putting processes in place, you know, training and then hiring. Uh, in my last company, we were a company of about 300 people, which is quite small, but it was a public biotech company. Oh, wow. And so there's a, a lot of... A 300 person lead. publicly held company? Oh, oh yeah, okay. it gets better. My second one has <laughs> 85 people. Wow. But, um, <laughs> you know... I, there's a lot that I love about being a lawyer, um, despite the fact that I didn't realize I was going to become one. But I say building the legal department is one of my proudest accomplishments because mm. I think if you can recruit really talented individuals and mentor them and guide them and be an asset to the organization, there's really nothing more rewarding, especially for in-house attorneys because a lot of times you hear them say, how do we get respect? How do we get resources? And if you can build a unit that is highly respected, there's nothing more rewarding than that to me. But as far as, you know, what's it like to be a GC, I learned early on in my career, I was I was mentoring someone who worked for me, and she always, she really wanted everything to always be perfect, and she'd get quite stressed out when there was a million things flying around. And so I gave her, um, you know, a hypothetical, which even 20 years later, I still go back to it all the time. And I said, uh-huh. you have to imagine that the company is like a fish tank and it's been shaken up like you can't imagine. And you come to work and you want the fish tank to be as pristine as the day you bought it, but it is (laughs) never gonna look that way. And your job each day 
is not to make it look that way because you're going to fail. But your job is to find the most lethal thing in the fish tank that's going to kill the fish that day. Get mm. rid of that thing. And then when you have a down day, then you can make the fish tank look beautiful if you ever have the time. <laughs> if that happens. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that is really, um, you know, I don't want to suggest that being a GC means being reactive because it doesn't. But the bottom line is you never have enough resources and you never know what the obstacle in the tank is going to be. And so our job really is to go in and make the environment for your business colleagues as productive and safe and make it so they don't have to worry about these things, so they can get the real mission. And for our case, it's curing cancer. Wow. That's a great, I love that analogy. I've not heard that before, but I really think, I I think it's a great way to think of it because there is always so much going on. It's really, it's like a triage approach, right? You're trying to figure out what is is the most pressing thing, what's the thing that will kill the fish. Absolutely, and I also think when you build a team, you have to show empathy but strength. And, you know, having buzzwords where I could say, you know, when they come in stressed out or they don't know what to prioritize, I'm like, think fish tank. What is the issue? (laughs) Right. Um, And that, you know, it helps them snap into things. That's great. No, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, in the analogy, though, who is the uh, little diver guy that pops up? <laughs> so it depends on the organization, okay? So in my old organization, I had grown it out. Even though it was only 300 people, my legal team was 10 people. So I had um, built an, mm. a nice, really strong group beneath me. But in my current job, I'm slow to hire because I'm conservative and I I really want to build as strong a team as I had before. And so I'll use outside resources if I need to um, with volume before hiring unless I find the superstars. And so right now it's just myself and a contracts um, paralegal. And, you know, we're still a publicly traded biotech company. (laughs) uh, And people say, how do you do it? And in this case, I'm bobbing and coming up for air and staying down. But I I think it's important when you first start to build an organization or a department to not just rush to start hiring, but to roll up your sleeves or put on your oxygen tank, whatever it is, and just spend some time to understand the water, so to speak, and what the predators are and how bad the current is and all that stuff before you uh, hire your team or you might not have the right team in place. Wow. So tell us a little, I mean, that's, I'm amazed at the small size of the company in terms of employees, given that it's publicly held and the important work you're doing. That's got to be a different environment than what a lot of other people deal with. Do you know most of the other employees and are they primarily scientists that are doing, doctors that are doing the, the core research? What are, is that the bulk of those employees? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. I mean, again, I have a unique background in the fact that I was a scientist and and never anticipated being a lawyer. And and I have a tremendous amount of respect for scientists. So I fit right in in that environment. I think what I would say is large companies with large law departments and smaller companies with small law departments, you know, if you're public and you're in pharma, you're facing the same issues. 
the difference is what your answers to those issues are. And what I found incredible over the years is I'll sit on panels next to someone in a major pharma company, and they might ask me and uh, that individual questions, you know, a compliance-related question, for example. And my answer, you know, we both know the law, right? and we both have what our outside counsel would say is A programs, A-plus programs. But our answers are completely different. And, and the reason is because the unique needs and characteristics of a small company versus a large company, the risk profile, mm. the mistakes made, the geographies they're in, all those things weigh in. My old company, even though it was only 300 people, we had offices in seven countries. We had at one point in our um, history an approved product in Russia. I went through NASDAQ delisting procedures. We did not get delisted. We came out of it and, and started growing. But I mean, my CV is a plethora. <laughs> I hate to admit it, it's a bunch of things you don't want to have to do at your company, but like, <laughs> if you need to do it, I've done You've it before. You've done it before, yeah. Um, and so, you know, being in a small company, one of the benefits is that I do, I do get to do just about everything. And I've told my current employer when they recruited me, there's, I challenge you to find something that scares me. Nothing will scare me because yeah. I've, I feel like I've pretty much seen it. It's just that my answers and the scalability of how I deal with it is different than at a large company. Yeah. No, that's that's remarkable. That is. Um, I I know that you know managing the legal issues, particularly in a smaller firm, can present challenges. Sounds like you've encountered a lot of them. I'm wondering if you've got some tips that you could give to other people in small departments about things that they may want to think about if they've never been in that situation. Oh, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, I, I think really the fish tank scenario is one. Don't assume that you're going to know what your day looks like. Um, another thing I would say, and I learned this early on, was I used to be intimidated that maybe I didn't know everything I needed to know. And it took me about a year of having a supervisor come in and I realized that he didn't know anything more than me. He just knew who to call and how to look confident. And he was a wonderful, actually, we're very, very, very good friends. And he's a great mentor to me. Um, but, and when he left, he actually promoted me to his position. So, I mean, I absolutely adore um, him and appreciate what he did for me. But I, from that moment on, realized that this job is not just about being an expert. Because, you know, frankly, at the law firms, you're an expert in securities law. You're an mm -hmm. expert in finance. But you're not an expert at being a GC. Right. The GC has to, like, listen to all this stuff all day and really back to the fish tank, figure out what the issues are because your colleagues don't know. At the law firm, someone calls you and they tell you the issue and you have to like respond. Right. As GC, you have to figure out the issues at, in real time. And if you know all the answers, then you're God. Like you can't possibly, you're wrong if you think you do. Right. And so I learned to get my confidence in knowing that I don't know all the answers, but I'm good at issue spotting mm -hmm. and I know who to call to get the answers and I know how to communicate the answers to the audience, which I think is Ah, equally important right. um, than knowing the answer because I tell colleagues of mine all the time, not just in law, but scientists and, and throughout the organization, you can be 100% right, but if you're speaking in a language that your colleagues don't understand, you're going to go nowhere. Um, so yeah, that's what right. my day is like. Okay. No, that sounds good. 
So, so Dwayne, let me have you join the conversation sure. here. We've got we've got these fish tanks out there, and sometimes the filters get clogged, or other things are happening. Tell us a little more about GC Solution and how it how it can help in the uh, in the fish tank scenario. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love the fish tank analogy. That's great. And and frankly, uh, I think two things. I had a former CEO tell me, and obviously it depends upon the industry, but uh, just the the mindset of the business people. He told me two things. He said basically, uh, the biggest enemy of good is perfection. That's one. And the other, he said, was fail, but fail fast. So that's the mindset of a CEO in a typical company. They're, they're, it's all about the business issues, and they don't want theory and a long dissertation of an answer. They want a practical <laughs> solution that I can apply to my business today. So that's really what they're looking for. Uh, I think the beauty of, uh, Mark, to your question in terms of GC Solutions, uh, the average GC Solutions attorney has about 15 years of experience. We've got uh, phenomenal uh, bench. We've got Harvard Law. We've got Penn. We've got uh, UC Hastings. We've got Chapel Hill U- VA weight, so it's an incredibly talented group of folks, uh, and I think over 80% of, uh, of the folks have, have literally lived in-house. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the beauty of, of GC Solutions. We've truly been there, done that, so we bring that practical aspect and, and the mindset and the expectation of what a business person, and, and frankly, and a GC is looking for in terms of solutions. So right. I think that's the value add for GC and, Solutions. And how's it different than just hiring Womble Bond Dickinson you know, for regular stuff and coming to, going to Caitlin? In other words, what, what's, what's the difference that GC Solutions would offer than Caitlin's general you know, corporate security? Sure. Plan? No, that's, that's a great question. And that really, the kind of, I think from a very high several, uh, summary level, there's a number of things that GC Solutions does. But I think the thing that resonates with me is the stack of documents on the corner of your desk that every in-house counsel sees. And I remember from my in-house days, that stack did two things. It stared at me every morning, it's like, <laughs> and it grew. So, and it's like, but you can't justify taking time to do that if you're in-house. GC, you've got you're fighting the fires, and you've got the the CEO, you know, coming maybe with an M&A transaction, or the VP of HR with an employment matter. You know, again, just across the wide variety of things that that in-house counsel deal with. But what GC Solutions does is basically enables the GC or the in-house counsel to address those issues on a very cost-effective manner. From a GC's perspective, you don't have the time to get to them from that perspective, but you also don't have the budget to pay big law rates to help you right. kind of whittle down that. But GC Solutions is very attractive rates, well under the $300 an hour mark. So it's um, one of the I got you. So it's a different, it's a different price point and a little different scope Absolutely. in terms of coming in on a specific project or other, exactly. uh, that kind of effort. Okay, exactly. thanks. That's helpful. Um, I know, you know, if we stick with our fish tank and you're good at issue spotting, there's obviously a time management component too because you can only do so much uh, in the time you're given uh, to keep the fish alive. What Do you have any practical tips as someone that's been doing it for a long time and apparently doing a good job with the fish? You know, <laughs> the fish, you know that, that company's still breathing. Um, what, what can busy folks do to maybe help manage that time better, Karen? Sure, absolutely. So I think first and foremost, you try to anticipate how long a task is going to take and how deep you have to go. Every project does not require you to get into the same level of analysis. And it's not necessarily just whether or not it's a complicated legal question, but also where does it fit on the priority mm. and the likelihood of being completed. And I spent a lot of my time managing my department 
you know, they're very, very smart people, but maybe they don't have insight into like what really is likely to be prioritized by the management team. And so if I can tell them, yes, that's an important question, but don't spend more than X amount of time on it. So you actually give them that specific guidance. This is, you know, don't spend more than five hours. If you think you need more, come back and tell I, me. I will if the individual is someone who needs assistance in that way, in right. that regard. Yeah. Um, I don't micromanage my team, mm-hmm. but I'm a pretty good judge of priorities. And so I consider once you build out a team, I can't do that now because I don't have the full-fledged team. But once I built out my team, I spent most of my time really just like I said before, kind of going on the surface and figuring out where I have to dive and to just tell people where to focus their energy. So that's one. The other is I make lists and I track progress because, you know, if you know, if you're told you have to do a thousand things and you're not crossing (laughs) off the list, I mean, I don't think you'll remember. So having it and and then like midday, if you had six things you had to finish and you only got two done, you better like hustle. So just, you know, keeping track of that. Do you do that electronically or in paper? Because I I still see both. I'm an an old traditional girl. I like my sticky pads. You know, my team tries to get me to throw everything away. (laughs) Throw it away if you want. Make it all electronic, but I still need my sticky pads. I'm the same way. I mean, I know there's a to-do list available in Outlook. I tried using it for a few months, but to me, just having something about seeing it there, crossing it off and having it literally, you know, up front and uh, in center on the desk is, is more important than the electronic tracking yeah. for me. But so. also, I don't have my sticky pad have 20 things on it. I mean, delegation, I think, is critical. And I don't just mean to the people within your department, but outside your department as well. I mean, if there's an HR issue coming up and a new you know, HR rule you have to read, and I don't have time, and right now I don't have a team, I'll send it to the head of HR and say, I'm sure you've seen this. There's a couple conferences on it. Give it a read and let me know if you have any questions. So I do think trusting your colleagues, and when you know that you're not going to have time to do everything at once, admitting, you know, admitting, put your hand up and say, I don't have the time to do this right now, but if you want to get a head start, go ahead. I mean, that's respected. And I think too many times people are afraid to admit that they have too much work or they they don't have enough team members. I, I don't have a lot of empathy for people who have too much work and can't get it done if they don't speak up. So speaking up and, um, you know, delegating and then using um, external resources at a reasonable rate. There's a lot of outside GC type situations now where you can call on them last minute and they can really be affordable. So doing that as well. Those are great. Those are great tips. None of them as good as GC Solutions. <laughs> For the yeah. record, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to get his card after yeah, this. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't want to make no, a no, plug yeah, on, no, on the that, podcast. Yeah, but. Um, what about time management tips that you've experienced? I know you had a lot of time in-house, Dwayne. Any, sure. uh, any one or two yeah, I'll, I think, I'll ask you to chime in in a minute, too, yeah, Caitlin. No, so I think that's great. And I, I obviously, I like Karen's first one, just prioritize, have the discipline to prioritize. And the other thing is just the, the discipline to do what really matters first, first. Uh, you know, if you're a perfectionist, you tend to do the things or gravitate toward the things you feel comfortable doing. Yes. But from a, from a time management perspective, you've got to do the things that really matter, and you're going to get the most bang for the buck. So that's my, my, my approach. I think from my perspective, it's uh, you know understanding deadlines and the work product that's desired. And I think you know from being outside counsel, it's probably helpful to in-house counsel as well to deliver the work product they want, so they don't have to kind of you know revise or reformat it uh, to present it to their audience internally. 
Yeah, no, I think those are good. I mean, I think, and those points resonate with me, too. I know I've started trying to tell associates, you give them something and they spend 20 hours researching, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of time. I'm going to have to write some of that time off. It's like, now I will say, I think this is a 10-hour project or a 5-hour project. If it's not, you know, let me know. And that way it, gives, it sets that expectation because I think without it, a lot of times people will just, particularly a perfectionist, someone, they'll just go until they feel like it's perfect. And as we all know, that sometimes you want that. I mean, for the U.S. Supreme Court filing brief, you're probably going to want, you know, you want that brief to be as good as it can be. But a quick memo on an important issue that's going to be done in two days is not a Supreme Court brief and it doesn't have to be, you know, annotated and thought to that level. So giving giving that guidance to other people, this is what my sense is, and I always underestimate it, so I have to come back and say, did you really think I could write that 20-page brief in five mm-hmm. hours? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, okay. But um, I think that's, a, I, think, I do think that's a really good, a good practical, practical tip. And even doing what needs to be done, even if it's not your first choice, right. uh, is true too. Mark, you know, I would just add also with, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of things out there on how does in-house counsel and law firms um, become more efficient together. And and I think that point about not just to the people who work below you, but to the communication between the general counsel and the law firm as to what deliverable we're looking for is critical. Um, And I don't think they should have to ask. I think in-house counsel should be clear because I can ask the same question and under the circumstances, I might need the brief. I might need 20 hours. I might need a crystal clear answer. I might have three board members who are going to challenge it. Right. On the other hand, I might just have a curious CEO who called me on a Saturday and has, <laughs> like, it's just wondering. Right, just wondering And it's about... important to tell your outside counsel that piece of information so they're not wasting their time. And, you know, I can't be upset with them if they went over when I didn't tell them what I was looking for. That is great. No, and I think that communication is so critical to be clear on. I, I think that's a, I think that's a key point. We touched on GC Solutions and alternative uh, legal providers. Can you give us some examples of of times you've turned to alternative providers or any experience that you may have had with those, Karen? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, honestly, I think what what GC Solutions sounds like is is exactly the kind of thing that small um, general counsel law departments need. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm slow to actually fill the roster of FTEs, and it's it's not a question of having the resource budget. I mean, I have the budget, but I want to make sure I'm hiring for the long term and for the sustainability. Mm-hmm. So I tend to, um, when it comes to volume overflow, if I can't predict volume and all of a sudden it pops up, I will use outside GCs who now have you know their own little shop and they'll provide these services yep. at, a, at a lower um, rate and it's extremely helpful to know they're out there and it's also helpful you know frankly if you're sick or you want to go on vacation yes. or maternity leave I mean I when I was at my old company um, before I built the department I went on maternity leave and I had one of those outside GCs just sit in my office for a, a yeah. few days um, obviously you need to use people when you don't have the expertise But um, I think it's less obvious to people in-house to form the external GC relationships before you need them. Because you can't call someone and say, hi, you've never met me, but can you possibly turn this around for $200 (laughs) by tomorrow? Right. But now that I have a handful of those people, they might not hear from me for three months. But when I contact them, they know the the drill. They know to say yes if you could do it today and no if it's going to take a week. Gotcha. No, that's helpful. Um, and Duane, can you just give us some, a couple of examples of how GC Solutions has provided you know, those services to, to clients when they get that time crunch or have that 
project that's that's blown up and, and no one anticipated it. Sure. Just And very briefly, Mark, I'll just kind of go across the entire spectrum of GC Solutions service offerings. We've done things from literally, I guess, on the upper end, in-house succumbents, where I, I've literally spent a year and a half, three days a week at a client's location. They were going through a transition at the C-suite level, uh, at the, the highest level, but also at the GC or CLO level as well. So I, I literally, for a year and a half, spent three <laughs> days a week at, uh-huh. at literally sitting in a client's office. On the other end of the spectrum, we provide things where we will simply, uh, we've got currently we have a very large multinational uh, client and we're reviewing their NDAs for them and that's what we do. We just turn those every day for them. But again, you're building that institutional knowledge with that client and then we know over the, you know, based on our experience what they're looking for and what their uh, pressure points are, if you will. So, and and again, uh, what Karen said as well, uh, providing overflow or we had a a, uh, securities lawyer that was, um, we placed her in-house for an assignment and after 30 days, they extended an offer to her. So that's you know that's just a validation to us that we're hiring the right people and doing the right thing. So uh, right. just kind of all across the all across so the spectrum. There, having having done this for a while now, um, do, are there are there things that you have noticed commonalities that you've noticed that you would advise GCs on uh, on essentially? things that they should be looking for to be able to, to bring in resources like GC Solutions and other resources like that sooner so that it doesn't get to a point where it's too overwhelming. Have you found that that's often the case when when clients reach out to you, that, that they've reached this kind of overwhelming point? Yeah, and the I think... you're dying. Yeah, two, two responses. One, I think Ken raised an excellent point about building that relationship early on. You know, don't pick up the phone on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday and say, I need your help by Monday on this. And, and you're trying to not only do the underlying work, but also gain an understanding of the client. And so that that's one thing. So that, that obviously would be helpful. And then on the other side, what we helped, where we found a little bit of a sweet spot, I'm working right now with a GC that uh, it's probably about two years removed from his law firm practice, relatively young, uh, but due to some transition within his department, he's the regional counsel of the North Americas. So that's a huge responsibility. So I'm, in a sense, mentoring him. So it's a great opportunity to come alongside him and, and basically mentor him and help him and be an additional that's resource for him. That's great. Um, we touched on this already some with the communication between inside counsel and outside, particularly around expectations. Is this a, is this a curiosity question or is this going to be debated at the board meeting? Um, Karen, I'm particularly interested if you have other tips for kind of maximizing that communication with outside counsel because I know it can be you know, a struggle and you, you know, in doing it. What other, what other suggestions might you have for folks? Um, well, you know, I think just being open and honest and candid is critical. I think anyone who knows me knows that you don't really ask me a question if you don't want to know what I really think. Um, but to respond with empathy and nothing's personal. And so I've tried both with the teams I build as well as my external service providers to just be real. You know, tell them what's really going on. They know I won't set a deadline if it's not real. I will tell them, I don't want you to stay up all night working on this. I'm not going to. (laughs) Um, And so just having that respect for each other enables you to have the tough conversations when you need to have them. And really, you know, just listen to each other. I think too many people hear but don't listen. And and make sure you understand what the other person's saying. Um, As the recipient of legal advice um, with external counsel, that means that if the answer, you know, sometimes you could get a stellar answer, but it's the wrong answer because they missed part of the question. Mm. 
And your, your job as in-house counsel is to translate the business people's questions to the experts outside who know the expert answer. And if you don't ask the question correctly or if they don't hear it properly, then your answer could be wrong. And so, you know, just constantly listening, uh, appreciating who you're working with, and, and again, just being open and trustworthy with each other. No, I think that's good. And, and the other thing that occurs to me, too, that I, I find is can be helpful is having communication along the way. The, the mm-hmm. times where you have that communication, if you do that and they call back the next day and say, is this really what you mean or this is what we're thinking? And you say, well, wait a minute, I forgot to tell you, you know, that here's this other aspect that you're not addressing. You can do it early as opposed to two weeks later when you get some answer that ends up only answering half of it or or making the incorrect assumption. So I think, yeah, I think that frequent touch is is an important part of that. I agree. I think that's key. Clear expectations. That's that's the biggest takeaway. Yeah, but sometimes the frame, the term clear expectations sets like a, it, it almost sounds like attention, like we're going to tell outside counsel that we're not going to spend more than this or that they have to do that. And and it can go both ways. The expectation can be, look, my expectation is not as high as you think today. <laughs> and tomorrow it's going to be two times as high as you think. And so I think that's important. If you're constantly aggressive when you don't need to be, then your credibility is compromised or you're just mm. a problem client. I think if you're a good person and you're a, a good person to work with, then people want to work with you, and it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, last question before we wrap up. I know this is something uh, a lot of folks struggle with is the resource allocation, the legal spend. The fish are going to die if I don't bring somebody on or use an outside service, or how do I get this done? Um, any tips? Because I think, again, that's not something you're learning in law school about how to set a bu- legal budget or ask for an increase in a legal budget. And I think it's something a lot of folks are kind of uncomfortable with because they feel like they're failing somehow if the budget's gone, you know, if the spend has gone up instead of down. Any suggestions on that? challenging topic for some people? Sure. I mean, I've evolved over time. I remember when I first started in-house and it was budget time, I decided I had to meet with each head and figure out what their priorities were and how much of this they're going to need and how much of that. And I tried to do all this calculating. I mean, now I honestly just look at what I did last year, think about the upcoming year, come up with a number and, and, and deal with it. But I think importantly, it, and it goes back to one of the things we were discussing early on, it's it's just kind of what are your relationships in the company? Um, I've never had in, in either one of my companies had to defend the need to hire someone or defend the spend because people trusted me. They they knew that I knew how to do my job and that they didn't and that they hired me to do my job. And so to me, it's more about how do I justify it to myself? When is the right time for me to spend the money? And to be honest, it's not even about spend. It's about long-term sustainability. Anyone you hire, they're changing your li- their life to come to you. So, you know, I've had the benefit in my old company we had multiple downsizings, and I've never had to let anyone go in my department. And it wasn't because the department was too lean. It wasn't. But it was because the people who worked for me had multiple skills. Like, they might they might be a scientist in IP, but they're also really good at reading abstracts. Or they might be the securities lawyer, but guess what? They're incredible writers, and they were writing the press releases. Um, for me, when we had downsizing, I ran BD for a little while. So, you wow. know, having legal expertise but flexibility and gaining respect... For me personally, that has kind of supplanted the need for me to worry about my budget. Gotcha. 
No, that's great. And yeah, and I think that having that personal credibility and trust makes all those other discussions much easier because they know that you can do the job and have been doing it and we'll keep the fish alive. So yeah. as long as you're doing that, you say you need that, you need that chemical treatment, you're going to get it. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Um, well, I know we're about out of time. Anybody have any final thoughts or remarks before we wrap up? Just appreciate right. the opportunity. No, yeah, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, awesome. Caitlin, Dwayne. Thank you, Karen. It's thank really, you. really informative. I appreciate uh, you spending time and sharing it. I think it was a terrific, terrific show. Um, I want to remind everybody, if they're looking for former episodes, you can find those at WombleBondDickinson.com. You can also subscribe there or on iTunes, the Google Play Store, or SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcasts, we're there. If you've got comments about this episode, you can share them on LinkedIn or Twitter. Send me an email. I'm always looking for new and exciting topics as well as guests. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse, and we will see you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.